Acts chapter 16. We'll be starting today in verse 16. Acts chapter 16, verse 16 through verse 24. If you would, church family, please stand with me as we read God's word. Acts 16, 16 through 24. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for another chance to be fed today by your word. We thank you, Lord, for another opportunity to have the the words of life exposed to us today. And Lord, I pray as we come to the story of this poor young woman, I pray that we might see in this story the beauty of what you do in the lives of human beings. Lord, I pray that today as we study, that you would guide us in our study, that you would guide us in our listening and, and in my speaking today, Lord, that as I speak, the Holy Spirit would do the work of opening our eyes and ears to understand and opening our hearts to receive the word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a a day and age and in a culture today where people are constantly searching for freedom in their lives. Uh, To a certain degree, it becomes an obsession for many people, this idea of finding freedom. It's an interesting thing to note as we come to a passage today that deals with themes of freedom and bondage. When we think about our culture, we think about the day and age we live. When we, if you think very hard, you'll, you'll come to realize that, that we do live in an in a environment, in a setting where freedom is, is extremely desired and desirable. And people seek to, to find freedom in all sorts of ways. Some people seek freedom through wealth, thinking that a certain amount of money will achieve for them a a kind of what we would call financial freedom, maybe. Uh, The ability to buy whatever you want, whenever you want. That's what we think of when we think of financial freedom, right? Unrestrained, not constrained by any sort of budgets or, or limitations. Some people seek freedom through retirement, Don't we all kind of think of our jobs a little bit in terms of slavery? I think all of us can relate to that at least a little bit. 
Uh, retirement for so many people has become this, this moment in their lives when finally they'll be free. They won't be under the bondage of, of work any longer. They'll be free to do whatever they want and whenever they want to do it. And then we see those people and don't they often end up being bored out of their minds with nothing to do when they eventually retire? They end up at Walmart as a greeter. Motorcycles, another great example of freedom. People talk about having a motorcycle or maybe something like a jet ski or a boat and, and say, I just, I love the freedom of having the wind in my hair, the open road, the open sea. These ideas of, of freedom, they capture our imagination. They, they take hold of our desires and, and we can become so enamored with these ideas of freedom. And I think what we can all relate to, and as someone who owns a motorcycle, I can tell you, it does not always bring the freedom you might think. You get that motorcycle, you get that money, you get to retirement and think, now I'm free, but are soon left to realize that that concept of freedom that you had your eyes, had your heart set on is not one that, that really fulfills. This idea of being unrestrained by anything, unbound by any sort of expectation or, or rules, this idea of freedom is one that so many have bought into and yet so many are left wanting after. I can't think of any more a prime example, though, of the sort of idolization of freedom in this, this new term that pop culture has now produced and, uh, and social media has given us to us. And I don't know if you've ever, ever heard of this term, but there is now a new category of people that call themselves by the name dink or dinks in the plural. For those of you who have never heard of what a dink is, DINK is an acronym that stands for Dual Income No Kids. These are couples who are so committed to this idea of freedom that they have labeled themselves of this term DINK. And again, this is a term they've given themselves. This is not a derogatory term that I'm putting on them. They call themselves DINKS. And, and you, you can look up videos. I'm not, I promise you, I'm not making this up. Of these people going on and on about the joys of being child-free how they have their freedom, how they have their, their money that they can spend however they want, their time that they can use however they want, a full house just to themselves. They have become just absorbed and completely consumed by this idea of freedom and are convincing themselves, and each of them will one day find out, that that idea of freedom, even that is in and of itself another form of bondage, and is destined to let you down. The reason why this is the case and why so many times people search for freedom and are ultimately left wanting is because they're searching for freedom in all of these false kinds of ways. All of these ideas that, that our sort of self-absorbed, autonomous culture has produced. Ideas that you should be able to do whatever you want, whenever you want, and however you want to do it. That's true freedom. And with true freedom comes true happiness, true joy, true contentment. Now, those of you who are in here today and are, are followers of Christ, you know that's not true. You know that all of those things lead people wanting, lead people left in their sorrow, because all of those things on their own leave people left in their sin. Today, what we'll see is where true freedom is, and more importantly, or excuse me, we'll see what true 
freedom is, and more importantly, where true freedom is to be found. If you recall from last week, we saw the first person recorded in Philippi who the Lord saves. It was a woman by the name of Lydia, this God-fearer, this woman who was of good reputation, a business owner. And we see the story of, of as she went to this place of prayer where the Jews of Philippi would gather near the river and they would pray and they would worship God. We see this woman who, in a very soft, gentle, almost subtle way, the Lord saves her through the preaching of the gospel as Paul and Silas come and proclaim to them the good news of Jesus Christ. But the second life that we see changed by the gospel here in Philippi is of a very different kind. It is not a, a person of high standing. Quite the opposite. It is a, it is a slave. It is not someone who, who has the, the means and the resources of Lydia. It's someone who is utterly dependent upon slave masters. And indeed, even in her conversion, we see something far more dramatic than the case of Lydia. And I think this is helpful for us, and we'll see even next week a whole different uh, vision of salvation for a whole different person, all of it resulting in the same thing, union with Christ, fellowship with Him, salvation, redemption. But in this case, we see a woman, a young woman, a slave woman who was in bondage, and she's in bondage in more ways than just one. We see here in our text that this young woman who was following Paul and Silas around as they were going back and forth between the place of prayer, as they were preaching the gospel, this young woman who was demon-possessed followed them around, followed them around crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. This woman who, as the story tells us, was bringing her slave owners, her owners much gain, much profit by her fortune-telling. It seems that this woman, whatever sort of uh, possession she was afflicted by, was able to, in some sense, predict the future, tell fortunes to people. Now, there are some who speculate as to whether or not she was actually able to do that by the power of these, these demonic forces, these spiritual forces, or whether or not perhaps it was just some sort of ecstatic utterances that were being uh, manipulated and, and interpreted, perhaps by her owners. But whatever the case, there was something happening, something about this demon-possessed woman that she was quite lucrative to her slave owners. So we see that she was in bondage in more than one way. Not only was she a slave and therefore in bondage to these slave owners, but perhaps even worse, she was in bondage to this demon. She was possessed by the power of this evil spiritual force. And one of the first things I want us to see as we consider this story of this young woman is that the knowledge of God does not set you free. Knowledge of God in and of itself is not the means, is not a power to free people from the grip of hell. This woman was walking around saying what? These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Which we read that, and let me ask you the question, what's wrong with that saying? What's false in that statement? Nothing. It's a proclamation of what is true and what is actually happening. That these men are indeed servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. 
Now, whether or not the woman had this knowledge or it was that of the demon, either way, it doesn't matter. It's proof that knowledge of the truth does not equal salvation, does not equal freedom. This woman was still bound even as the truth was being proclaimed. It was being proclaimed, as R.C. Sproul says, through clenched teeth. There are many people in the world, even people in churches, who rely on their knowledge thinking that that's what saves them, thinking that that is where freedom is found, found in knowledge, even knowledge of God. People will dedicate hours, even commit their lives to study, to research, to learn theology, to learn doctrine, to learn church history, and even to learn the scriptures. And one thing that we find is true even here as displayed for us is that all the knowledge in the world apart from the saving power of Jesus Christ can avail you nothing can find you no freedom and therefore should not be the place where we put our hope and rest our assurance as far too many people do Paul before his conversion is a great example of this isn't he Paul knew the Old Testament very well. The Jewish Bible, what they had as far as revelation that God had given them, he knew it well, inside and out. He was a student of the scriptures. In fact, he stuttered under the great Gamaliel. If you remember this this great uh, uh, man of God, this man who was was a Pharisee, who was one of the most well-known teachers of the law of God, and yet he and Paul both, knowing the scriptures well, were dead in their sins and trespasses. They were not freed. They were not saved, despite all of their knowledge. It wasn't until the Lord intervened in Paul's life that salvation was his, that freedom was his. James chapter 2, verse 19, puts it in a dramatic way and one that we see even played out here in our text. James 2, 19, James says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You see, understanding of who God is, belief in God, knowledge of God, apart from the saving work of God, can avail a person nothing. It does not bring freedom. Any more than money brings freedom. Any more than retirement brings freedom. Knowledge on its own does not bring freedom. And while this is This is helpful and instructive for those who maybe are relying on their knowledge, relying on what they know, what they've learned. I think on the flip side too, isn't it also encouraging for us who feel like our knowledge is lacking? Who feel like there's so much about the scriptures, about theology, about doctrine that we don't know? It can be intimidating sometimes, can it? Especially when you know people who are just so well equipped, so knowledgeable in the scriptures and it you can feel so, so inadequate, so less than as a believer because of a lack of knowledge. Well, let me encourage you, church family, if that's you in here today, if you feel as though your lack of knowledge is somehow exempting you from salvation, let me just encourage you that it is not. A lack of, of a full understanding of doctrine, of theology, all of those things is not necessary for salvation. Think of the the man in John chapter 9. John chapter 9 tells a great story. It's the whole chapter dedicated to the story of this man, a man who was born blind, who had never seen anything his entire life. And then one day, Jesus comes into the scene. 
enters into this man's life, and Jesus heals the man. He puts mud on his eyes, tells him, go wash, and immediately the man is healed. Sight is restored. When I say restored, I mean granted for the first time because he had never seen anything. And people were astounded, and they said, look, isn't this the guy who, who was blind from birth, who's never seen a thing, and now he can see what happened to you? And he tells them, this man Jesus came, made mud, put it on my eyes, told me to go wash, and now I can see. And so they took him to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees said, what happened? How is it that you can see? He said, well, this man Jesus came by, put mud on my eyes, told me to go wash, and then I could see. The Pharisees didn't believe it. They said, this guy's a liar. So they called in his parents and said, tell us, is this your son, one who was born blind? Is this him? And they said, yeah, this was him. They said, how is it that he can now see? And his parents, if you know the story, they were terrified. They knew that it was, that it was already uh, a punishment of getting kicked out of the synagogue if you were to proclaim Jesus Christ or claim that he was the Messiah. That was grounds for being excommunicated from the synagogue. And so his parents, even in fear, said, hey, he's an adult. He's of age. Go talk to him if you want to know. Don't talk to us. Go talk to him. So they call the man back in again. And they say again, speak the truth. Here's what they say. After having called him back in before the Pharisees a second time, they say this, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. And listen to this man's answer. Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. What a beautifully simple declaration of what God had done in this man's life. He didn't have all the answers. In fact, earlier he said, I think Jesus might be a prophet. I don't know. I know he comes from God. He healed my eyes. It's a misunderstanding, right? Jesus was not a prophet. Even now, he said, I don't know if he's a sinner. All I know, I was blind. Now I see. A simple profession, and yet one that represents a man whose life had been dramatically altered, whose life had been dramatically changed, a man who had been saved by Christ. And who ultimately, as we learn later on in the, in the message, would meet Christ again, and immediately become his disciple and begin worshiping him. Even with this simple profession, even with a lack of full knowledge and full understanding, this man belonged to Christ. That's the cry of every believer. Whether you know the ins and outs of the hypostatic union or transubstantiation or whatever else you might name as far as theology, doctrine, whatever it is you do or don't know, if you know this truth about Christ, that he has saved you from your sin, having taken God's wrath upon the cross on your behalf, and that by faith he's freed you, saved you from the wrath of God that you rightly deserve, and made you his own, then you are his. Regardless of what else you do or don't know, don't put so much weight and knowledge and learning and understanding so that your assurance is shaken. Our assurance is set on Christ and Him alone. Even in these circumstances, we see here this woman 
was healed at the hand of Paul. It was not by his power that she was healed, that she was freed, though. It was by the power of Christ. Jesus says in John 8, 32, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Paul says also in Galatians 5, for freedom, Christ has set us free. We're already beginning to see the answer to the question where freedom comes from. It comes from Christ and him alone. Christ is the one who set this woman free and for all who would seek to be free, it is found only in him. And this is a kind of freedom that is both confusing and oftentimes frustrating to the world, isn't it? Certainly it was frustrating to these men who were the owners of this woman, this girl, as they saw this girl who was now freed from bondage to slavery. These heartless, wicked men thought only of one thing. How are we going to make money now? This woman who had brought in for them so much money, these snake oil salesmen who had been using this woman for all kinds of gain, just like that, she was freed from her bondage, freed from this demon possession. They saw their chance of money-making disappear, and it so infuriated them, so frustrated them. And so what do they do? We see what they do next leads us to point number two, that the life of the believer belongs to the Lord. As the saying goes, no good deed goes unpunished. What happens to Paul and Silas after they cast the demon out of this woman? What do they get uh, in return for their efforts? We see in verse 19 and following. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them into the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. We see here them being brought before the rulers and accusations made. And we read these accusations and we go, what are they talking about? They are so way off in these accusations, so off base. And the claims made by these men, certainly, they're exaggerated to be sure. But I propose to you that their claims were not entirely unwarranted. It was indeed Paul and Silas's intention to see these Romans converted from their paganism and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, much like many of the nations that we pray for, was against the law. It was against the law in the Roman Empire at this time to seek to convert people to Christianity or to Judaism. And so while these men were somewhat maybe ill-motivated, they had ill intentions for why they brought these men before the magistrates. Certainly, uh, they had not been converted to these men's religion. Even still, it's not entirely unwarranted. For it was indeed the mission, the goal of Paul and Silas to see people saved from their Roman, Roman paganism and brought under the dominion of Christ. While they were accused under false pretenses, they were seeking to preach seeking to teach the people a way different from Roman tradition. If, if you recall, I've maybe mentioned this before in a sermon, but if you've ever heard the phrase, Jesus is Lord, that phrase to us is almost innocuous. It's something that I think maybe we just take for granted. We can say it all we want. It has no real effect in the world around us. 
But in this day and age, that was a phrase that could get you killed. A phrase that was wholeheartedly opposed to the Roman idea. Because what was the Roman idea? What was the Roman saying? Caesar is Lord. They essentially saw this claim of saying that Jesus is Lord as a seeking to undermine, overthrow, usurp the authority, even the role of deity that was, played, that was placed on Caesar. And so to even claim and say, as the Christians did, Jesus is Lord, was to invite the wrath of the Roman government upon them. And yet, it was the intention of Paul and Silas to do exactly that. We see here Paul, who was once a slave to sin, and he too was freed by Christ, freed by the gospel. And where has that freedom now led him? Directly into a beating and imprisonment. He along with Silas. But what's fascinating, it's fascinating to see that as Paul and Silas, though they are putting, getting put through the worst of experiences here, having been beaten with rods, and, and we hear this term beaten with rods, and we might think of, I don't know, a spanking we got when we were young. But it's not the idea that we have before us here. You see, in the Roman understanding, the Roman uh, setup, the way they, they structured these kinds of punishments, unlike Jewish tradition, which said you could only limit the amount of strikes to this many, the Romans had no such limitation. The Roman authorities could deliver as many blows as they wanted. And you see here also that it says that they were stripped so that there would be nothing to ease the blow, nothing to soften the weight of the rods being struck against their backs. But they were humiliated, they were beaten, and ultimately they were thrown in stocks in the deepest dungeon. And yet, we see these men, as we're going to look at next week in depth, even still behaving uncharacteristically like free men. Paul and Silas didn't act like people who were imprisoned. They didn't act like people who were being, being uh, delivered such great injustice. I mean, think how we might react if we were in their place. We'd probably be grumbling, complaining, yelling, screaming, cursing. I know my own heart. I know that would be my temptation. But what do we see of Paul and Silas? They acted like free men. It reminds me of what Paul says in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. He says, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, as he certainly was here, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We see Paul and Silas in the very next verse. We're not going to get there, uh, stay there too long, but at verse 25 says, as we see them in the prison, in stocks, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. That's what they were doing. They weren't crying. They weren't weeping. They weren't angry. They were praying and singing hymns, singing songs here in the midst of this prison. Even in these circumstances, Paul knew the secret to joy and contentment, which is something we'll look at a little bit more next week in depth. 
But Paul is a supreme example for us of what it looks like to offer yourself fully unto the Lord as his instrument. Paul understood that his life was not his own, but that he belonged to Christ. And true joy, true contentment can only be found in submission to his will, can only be found in service to him. Offering ourselves as living sacrifice to the Lord. Though they found themselves imprisoned, Paul and Silas were living their lives in freedom, in the freedom of Christ, as they were committed to his service even here. This is where true joy comes from. This is what true freedom looks like. Much like the joy that we find in Christ, the freedom that we have in him, him is true regardless of our circumstances. It seems to me like there are many Christians who talk about their own sin as though they have no power over it, no freedom over it. They talk and act as though they're still enslaved to it. But I would encourage us to consider this passage, to consider the reality of the gospel that's portrayed in the deliverance of this woman from the demon oppression, that she is freed from her bondage, freed from slavery, and freed to follow Christ. Christ has given us freedom from our slavery to sin. And yet so often, we willingly put ourselves back under that yoke of slavery. We willingly submit ourselves and give ourselves over to these things, even though the Bible says we are free from these things. We are, as the proverb says, like dogs that return to their vomit. It's a disgusting picture, isn't it? And it's a rightful picture of those who return to their folly, of those who return to their sin, as we so often do. We forget the promises of Scripture. We forget the freedom of ours that is ours in Christ Jesus. And we turn to our sin, these things that don't satisfy, not only don't satisfy, these things that are absolutely repulsive and disgusting. Consider what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. Verses 15 through 23. This is a lengthy quote, but worth every minute. What then, Paul says, are we to continue in sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either sin which leads to death or obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit which you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For indeed, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ 
our Lord. This is what Paul writes concerning our freedom in Christ, that we were once slaves to sin, serving it as our master, as our owner. And in Christ, we have been freed from that bondage, freed from slavery to sin, and freed to be slaves of righteousness. If you're a Christian, then you've been set free from bondage to sin. And Paul says, reckon yourselves dead to sin. We have been freed from sin. We are no longer under bondage to sin. Don't live your life as though you don't have any choice but to wallow in whatever sins that you deal with, whatever it is that you struggle with in life. God has freed you from those things and from bondage to those things. We as Christians have been set free from our bondage to sin. But the freedom to which we have been called means freedom to submit to Christ in all things. Paul is clear. A Christian is one who's been set freed from slavery and called to slavery. We've been freed from slavery to sin and freed to slavery to God. This is what the Christian life looks like. And this is where true freedom is found. It sounds like a paradox. It sounds nonsensical to say that true freedom is found in slavery to Christ and submitting ourselves as willing servants, willing slaves to him. And yet, what do we see over and over again? That the most content, joy-filled people in the scriptures and even in our lives, the most content, joy-filled Christians that we know are those who have given themselves over to Christ, submitting themselves to him, to his will, and to his calling on their life. The more we turn back to our sin, and more than that, the more we buck against slavery to God, slavery to righteousness, submitting to God, the more we will struggle to feel as though we are not free. Because freedom is not found in any of those things. It's not found in in money. It's not found in retirement. It's not found in anything else but in submission to Christ alone. The point is, Christ brings freedom, but he also calls us to lay down our lives for his sake and for the sake of the gospel. It all really comes down to whether or not we believe what Christ himself says. He says in Matthew, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. These are the promises of God that we have. Rest in these promises, trust in these promises, and believe that the word of God is true and the Lord, the Lord will not forsake his own, but in him we will receive blessing upon blessing. Turn to Christ. Turn to him for freedom. But as Paul says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but worship the Lord. Submit to him in all things. Let's pray.